Hi everybody, welcome to the second episode of the Wrestling Eye podcast with me, your host, Alan Blackstock. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking with John Lister, who is a wrestling historian and author. Also, Chad Campbell and Parv from PlaceToBeNation.com. They host a podcast over there called Where the Big Boys Play, which covers WCW Super Shows and is such a really fun podcast, I recommend anyone listens to it. And finally, we're also going to be joined by Gaz Mabry, who's a wrestling announcer for Welsh Wrestling. Um, all of us are going to be discussing the topic US Wrestling coming into the UK, how that came about, when was its boom periods, and any stories around that. It's a very fun podcast this week, and I hope you all enjoy it. So here you go. Thank you very much. Well, hello, everyone. And you're listening uh, once again to Where the Big Boys Play. And as ever, I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing good, Parv. <laughs> and uh, we, we are, we're doing a, a special uh, show today, uh, which is going to be um, about uh, British wrestling. Well, more about wrestling in Britain rather than uh, British Wrestling, and I'm uh, joined by a, a number of uh, guests here. We have uh, Alan. Uh, how are you doing, Alan? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Parv? You good? Uh, I am. I'm, I'm pretty good. Just in, enjoying a, a cup of tea here. Um, and for once, uh, I'm joined with a, with a whole a group of people who don't think uh, that means, uh, you know, herbal tea or drinking iced tea or something like that. <laughs> Which um, uh, and I'm also here with uh, John Lister. How are you doing, John? Hi, great to be here. And uh, and Gareth, uh, aka Butch Reedmark, on uh, on the boards there. How are you doing, Gareth? I'm absolutely grand, thank you, pal. <laughs> and um, uh, well, Alan, uh, you really came up with this I- idea, um, and uh, you recently also uh, launched your own uh, podcast, uh, The Wrestling Eye. So, well, why don't you tell us uh, what we're uh, kind of planning to do on this show today? Um, and uh, and about your current project. Oh, thank you very much. Um, this podcast today, we're planning to just discuss the how American wrestling and non-British wrestling in general kind of came into into Britain from you know uh, American wrestling, Japanese wrestling, and how that's changed uh, British wrestling now and what it's become and basically the influences uh, elsewhere uh, over the last 20, 25, 30 years um, that have come into, into Great Britain. Um, so discussing all about that and obviously some notable events from SummerSlam 92 and other, other big events uh, over here. And just to mention my podcast itself, it's called uh, Wrestling Eye Podcast. And it's a podcast basically... I'm looking to do general analysis of pro wrestling, uh, so it's not going to be time-specific as such. So we're going to talk about big events uh, in the past, uh, how they've shaped the wrestling landscape, and just getting a wide variety of guests on, uh, from writers to journalists, authors, promoters. And I think we've got a few interesting topics lined up in the next few uh, months on that show. So you can track us and get us on iTunes at Wrestling Eye Podcast, on Stitcher Radio. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Wrestling Eye Pod. And all the information is up there to subscribe and listen to the shows moving forward. Okay, great. And uh, John Liston, now uh, you've been um, around for a long time, John. Um, when you uh, give, give give anybody who doesn't know uh, a kind of brief rundown of of, of your involvement with pro wrestling, uh, but journalism, I guess, over the past uh, however long it's been. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing uh, for. First fanzines, men talk professional magazines, going right back to 1990 when I was uh, 14 years old, writing for a local fanzine. 
uh, wrote for Power Slam for many years and now write for Fighting Spirit magazine, where among my pieces, I do a, a monthly series talking uh, to World of Sport era guys, looking back at their sort of their career and their lives in and outside the ring. And I've also written three books, uh, Turning the Tables, which is about the history of ECW, Slamphology, which is a collection of articles from over the years, including three travelogues uh, going around the United States to everywhere from ECW Arena to Memphis TV Studios, the Sportatorium, uh, abandoned shopping malls in New Jersey where there was an indie show. And the <laughs> last book was uh, Greetings Grapple Fans, which was a collection of articles I wrote for the Fight Network website about British wrestling past and present. Yeah, and no, in a in a kind of alternative uh, life, uh, I'm also a lecturer in English, uh, John, and uh, I, I know in, in an alternative life, you were also involved with something called the Plain English Campaign, is that right? That's right, yeah, I used to work there for about uh, six or seven years, and it was... Uh, a pressure group trying to get sort of public information, so everything from forms, leaflets, contracts, written to be sort of easier to understand. So it was a quite quite interesting uh, job, especially coming from the perspective of a, a journalist uh, and sort of spoken to everybody. And think the strangest moment ever was led to me being interviewed on uh, Good Morning Bogota, the radio show over in, in Colombia. Uh, and being asked uh, questions about Richard Gere and exactly what had been put up his bottom. <laughs> and uh, I have to ask you, um, what do you think of the general standard of writing in kind of pro the pro wrestling coverage? Because uh, for all his, uh, uh, I guess, for all his, you know, for all the great things he's done, Dave Meltzer is hardly the best pro stylist in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair to Dave, if you, you look at... You know, the number of words he writes each week and how long he must spend on the, on the phone. I don't think there's, you know, any chance for second writing, but certainly, certainly, uh, wrestling journalism, it's kind of because it's such a, a niche subject, you do have, uh, a lot of people who kind of come into it who aren't kind of professional journalists. It's quite a sort of a, a limited thing to have sort of, you know, good writing skills and sort of wrestling knowledge. If, if you had to name some of the good writers out there though, who would you say, uh, you know, other than yourself, who, who who else is a good writer? Would you say? Well, I mean, I think uh, you know most of the, the crew on on Fighting Spirit magazine. I, I have to say, um, because since Brian Elliott took over, he sort of changed the magazine a lot, and he always tells us to kind of pitch it to either like a a World Football or Total Football magazine or the Sunday Times uh, sports section. So it's very much kind of a, a broadsheet, in depth kind of look at it with sort of you know professional writing. Uh, a lot of kind of journalism as well, so you're sort of getting hold of the wrestlers, kind of speaking to them, getting quotes from them, sort of the same way as you'd cover any other sort of sport or business. Okay, great. And uh, the the, the uh, final member of the uh, panel that uh, you, I have to give the credit to Alan, really, you, you uh, put all of this together, um, is, is Gareth, um, a.k.a. Butch Reedmark, as I said. Now, Gareth, why don't you tell us your involvement with uh, pro wrestling and uh, I guess also the online community as well? Well, uh, I'll start off by saying I'm 28, single, have a lovely dog. And, um, <laughs> well, it's just for the ladies listening mainly. And um, yeah, I moderate on a forum called UKFF, which is found at UKFF.com. And I'm also perhaps Wills' worst ring announcer for a company called Welsh Wrestling, which can be found at <laughs> wrestling.com. Bring all around the great country of Wales, which hopefully will come later on with wrestling. And the wrestling's continuation of that. 
<laughs> and also I work at Wales Comic Con. Basically, if it's got Wales in it and it's doing wrestling, I seem to have my finger in that pie. Perfect. And it's uh, great also to have a fellow countryman on the uh, on the podcast. I, I never uh, tire of telling uh, my Titans of Wrestling co-hosts that, uh, you know, Wales is not in England and I'm not English. <laughs> um, Chad, do you think we've got any female listeners? Uh, there, there may be one or two <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> my, my wife sometimes catches bits and pieces of the episode, so I guess you can count that. Um, okay, well, uh, in uh, in light of the fact that um, the, um, the you know, given that uh, four of us on this uh, show are British, and Chad, um, you're uh, sitting all the way over there in uh, Georgia. We thought that the best uh, way to do this was uh, for Chad, uh, essentially, to take over the, the reins of uh, chairing this uh, kind of discussion. Um, so, Chad, I'm going I'm to hand over to you. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, this will be a bit of a different, uh, I guess, role than I usually play, but I don't have, obviously, too much to say about British wrestling in America or American wrestling in Britain because I've lived in Georgia pretty much my whole life. So before we begin, kind of to give a little uh, background on where everyone's frame of reference is, we're going to go around and just give a brief history of when you became a fan, uh, who were some of your favorite wrestlers when you first became a fan, and what promotions you were watching. And we'll start with Parv. Yeah, well, uh, I, I guess uh, I've I, I probably mentioned this uh, before, but I, I really started watching wrestling around 1990, 91 sort of time. Um, and really, that was the time when um, wrestling kind of was big in school. You know, normal people in school would be watching, started watching WWF. And I was part of that whole, uh, I guess I got swept up in it. And the way, the way I always explain uh, my kind of... Um, we didn't have Sky uh, at that time, so uh, really, it, it, the tapes, the Coliseum uh, videotapes were, um, I, you know, I'd bought a couple, and then lots of people had them, and I, my big thing was swapping other tapes, um, and uh, acquired, I, I acquired a big collection just through doing little swap deals with, with uh, my friends, and in fact, it's still brought up. I had a World Cup 90, um, a World Cup 90 um, video. Um, and I, I, I think I did a swap deal where I got WrestleMania 6 and WrestleMania 5 and maybe like a SummerSlam. And uh, some of my friends from school still mention that because it wasn't meant to be permanent. And I've still got those tapes. <laughs> so it's still, uh, it's still mentioned once in a while. Um, but uh, I, I, I guess the way I, um, I think in about 93, uh, and the, the, the guys will probably agree with this, um, wrestling did kind of fall off a cliff around the era where uh, Luger was kind of uh, being pushed, you know, the, the Lex Express. Um, and the analogy I always make is, is a bit like wrestling was like uh, like a fad, like a yo-yos or something. And uh, it's almost o- overnight it became uncool. And you know like how there's always one kid who still stays in into like yo-yos? Like he comes into school and he's, he's still like well into it and everybody's moved on. Um I guess rest, I was that kid with wrestling because it, it stayed with me forever, even through the dark <laughs> uh, period. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Uh, but it was a almost exclusive WWF when you first started watching, correct? Yeah, well, yeah, I 
I had I also watched WCW, but it was on like two three a.m. after right. Prisoner Cell Block H on on yeah. uh, <laughs> on HDV, right, Gareth? <laughs> and <laughs> and I um I I I but like I watched that, but I don't think any of my friends knew who Sting was. You know, <laughs> um, it, I reckon maybe like one percent of all wrestling fans maybe watched that WCW show late late at night. Um, uh, so yeah, I watched WCW and WF, but I'd say in terms of the everyday kid, it was almost exclusively WF. WF was wrestling at that point. Okay, Alan, how about you? Um, it was very similar, really. I think there's a generic uh, kind of fan story for people in the UK of a certain age where they all got into it at the same time. So I was similar to Parv, where it would have been, frame of reference, a few months before SummerSlam 91, I witnessed it for the first time uh, on a friend's mother had Sky, and it was on, and I was just, I just thought, wow, all these colours, all these kind of huge men looking scary and strong, and, you know, for someone at the age I was, I would have been nine at the time. It was just, you know, another world. It was like comic books come to life. So that was kind of when I first saw wrestling. And from there, you track down all the tapes. Uh, you, you see tapes for sale in, in, in the shops and WH Smith's and all these shops at the time. And I think the first tape I bought would have been WrestleMania 3. Um, I think having Andre the Giant on the front. And I think at the time I'd played some of the video games featuring him. And he was just this kind of super large in life character. And I wanted to know more about him because when I was watching, he, he wasn't on TV anymore. So I dipped my toe in with WrestleMania 3 and then the rest history. We're, you know, 20 odd years later now and uh, I'm still as into it as I was then. And there's, there's a couple of little things I, I just want to mention there, Joe. You mentioned, uh, like, um, I, I seem to remember that when I first got into wrestling, there was, like, a lot of, like, old women who watched, like, did, is that something you can, like, you guys saw? Like, I, I, we had, uh, my mum had a friend across the road. Uh, who was like in her 60s and she was like well into it and she, like she wasn't like there was kind of like a weird old woman audience did, did any of you know any kind of kind of old women uh, well i i would say um i did um being from blackpool and um, there's kind of a bit of a heritage of uh, pro wrestling here the idea uh, for years and years at the tower blackpool tower which is uh big tower on the seafront here in Blackpool. I think people have heard of Blackpool through uh, William Regal on WWE TV and whatnot. Um, and from there, people years ago, before 91, obviously, it died off by then. We used to go to the shows. I remember my grandmother had a friend across the road who um, found out when I was into wrestling, she started recording, she had Sky. Uh, she started recording for me, bless her. This was about 93, all the superstars on long play VHS tapes. So I had all the superstars, all the challenges, so a four-hour tape on long play, so eight hours of wrestling, I'd get that maybe once a month. So that was great. I used to get that, and she used to tell me stories of these wrestlers, like a wrestler called Jack Pye, who was uh, kind of big big in Blackpool at the time, and, you know, stories of, you know, your daddies in haystacks and whatnot. But I think I, I, I also have a brief memory of World of Sports. It would have been, I would have been five or six. I just remember, if you guys here remember a TV show called Terror Hawks, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Anyone. Yeah, it was, it was, for my real, real brief memory would have been Terror Hawks was on around 12 o'clock lunchtime on ITV and it was followed by World of Sports. Really, really kind of faint memories of that, but I do remember that briefly. And I was going to ask you actually too, Alan, that 
I know, uh, I don't know exactly when you join the pro wrestling only boards, but I know that our interaction just both on there and on Twitter is really heightened. It seems in the past six months. So I was wondering if you could kind of discuss a little bit how yourself as a, I guess an internet wrestling fan, the type of plight you took there. Um, I've been around on the internet with pro wrestling ever since AOL and before that that became big in this country. So 95, 96, there was a newsletter I used to read called News from Daytona. I don't know if anyone remembers that. I remember Alex Marvez was a writer for that. It was a website or something like that. And then from there, uh, discovering more about, more about wrestling. I've posted in the past on the UKFF, which, as Gareth and John uh, will, will mention, it's a good board for discussion from UK fans about wrestling in general. So that board isn't specifically about British wrestling at all. There's a section on British wrestling and there's a lot of British wrestlers who lurk on there and post on there under pseudonyms. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, so I think a lot of, um, a lot of the UK fans or the hardcore fans post on that. So I've been on there in the past and just generally now on more of the American boards. So that would be pro wrestling only, which I, you know, I love looking at all the old, posts that uh, Charles and Will do about the yearbooks and things like that. And it's just at the moment, I just like just going through one of these phases of really, really watching a load of old footage and getting people, like-minded people who want to discuss that with me. So that's where I am at the moment, really. Okay. Uh, Gareth, let's hear about your uh, discovery as a fan of pro wrestling. Well, uh, I was what I suppose you'd call an early satellite adopter. I think in 1989 we got it when I was about four. And it was literally bugger all on. Over there. <laughs> I saw this just wrestling in The Simpsons. I mean, there was a channel called Lifestyle, which was a women's channel, with women's programming. But on the weekend, they showed WCCW tapes from 1982. It was the strangest thing. And so, obviously, if you had Sky, you watched wrestling. And then, of course, from there we had um, Wrestle, and then we started doing ECW on Bravo, and... Yeah, I think if you had a satellite dish and a penis, you were a wrestling fan. <laughs> so so y'all three are pretty much fairly close to each other within two years apart, uh, it seems like, when you first kind of discovered wrestling. I'm guessing John may be a little bit earlier, but you can go ahead and fill in with your history, John. Yeah, I mean, a little bit earlier, but not by a great deal. Uh, I used to watch the Saturday afternoon world of sport wrestling, and it was kind of, I, I wouldn't call myself a fan, it was just kind of, you know, a show I'd watch if I was home, I wouldn't get out of my way to watch it. Uh, then in 1988, I moved to a new town called Stevenage, uh, where the local authority had done a deal because it was uh, largely sort of council housing across the entire town. So the council had done a deal to bring cable TV. And for five years, uh, if you paid £75, which is about $125, you got cable TV for five years, which actually sounds amazing. It was only three extra channels, but one of them was, was the Sky Channel, which is now Sky One. And that meant that pretty much every single child in the entire town watched wrestling because it was the, the big show on Sky. Mm. In fact, um, WrestleMania 5, uh, according to Sky at the time, among people who had cable TV, which obviously, and satellite TV, which is obviously a fairly uh, narrow group, it was the most watched program that night, so more than any of the sort of uh, terrestrial TV channels. So it was incredibly popular. So, of course, me being obstinate, I watched it once, and it was uh, an episode of either Challenge or Superstars, and there's one match with uh, Ted DiBiase squash, 
uh, ended up with him putting a dollar bill down the guy's uh, throat. The next match was uh, Jake was saying Robert Squash ended with him putting a snake over somebody. I saw watching this and I thought, this is ridiculous. This is immature. This is children. I'm not watching this. <laughs> uh, that was a year of wrestling lost to me because, you know, 1988 never watched anything. Um, then I... Uh, Early 89, I had to sort of tune in again, and it was the Hogan-Savage split uh, where they sort of, their mega powers broke up. And from then, I was absolutely hooked. And uh, similar to as Alan said, it was, you know, watching it long after it was kind of fashionable with anybody else. And I, I definitely would say uh, N92, 93 was the, the sun split because I remember uh, SummerSlam 92, it was still like, you know, it's kind of a big deal sort of uh, among my friends at school, but, you know, I was going to this show. Uh, but I remember the, the day after WrestleMania 9, it was like I was, everything was being mentioned for WrestleMania 9 as being mocked as I was, you know, why would you still be watching it? But it was actually an amazingly accurate description of what happened by the people who were mocking it and saying how bad it was. So I don't know how they possibly knew what had happened. I, I, I think the absolute full stop for, like, the kind of average school kid was probably King of the Ring. Would you like That was probably, like, the, you know... I would completely agree with that. Around that time, I don't know what happened with the product. Well, I do know what happened, but I don't know why so many people fell off in droves. I think one of the things was um, you, you went to sleep one day as a wrestling fan. You woke up the next day and you were a Gladiators fan. And I think, yeah, yeah, I was actually going to say that. Um, it very fits in with what we're saying about it kind of being seen as a sort of a fad rather than a permanent thing. So I think it, it took over from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it's probably quite telling that uh, when Davy Boy Smith left WWF in 1992, which was obviously a fairly big part of it kind of losing popularity here, the big story in the newspapers was, oh, he's leaving and he's going to go to Gladiators now. He's going to be an American <laughs> Gladiator. So it's like you could definitely see they could tell, you know, what the next fad was going to be. Yeah. So now, was there a... Well, right? well, right? Go ahead, Gareth. In 93, I think I was I was eight. I think a lot of it then as well, you start, you're eight, it's like, oh, I'm not watching wrestling, it's for kids. So mm. you, know, you start running into your rugby and your football then as well. I think that's what happened to me. For about three or four years, I just replaced wrestling on me Saturdays with just lots and lots of rugby. You know, because I think you, you think, oh, wrestling's fake, but, but sport isn't. So instead of being more of a gladiators person, I just really got into my sport for a few years until about 96, 97 when I got back into it. I have to say, like everybody else, I had the, you know, the periods of giving up wrestling because I wasn't going to watch it anymore and coming back later. Uh, mine actually only lasted five days because at the end of uh, the end of WrestleMania 9, I was so, so pissed off about, you know, Hogan coming back, suddenly getting all the glory. <laughs> Uh, I think I was actually literally sick when that happened. And I just, you know, I, I had no interest at all. Uh, and then sort of five days later, my uh, friend who was into wrestling uh, had told me that uh, Mr. Fuji had put in an official protest. Uh, and I was away on holiday with my parents. I distinctly remember uh, sneaking off from dinner to go to a payphone to phone up my friend to find out the result of Mr. Fuji's protest. And of course, it was determined an oral contract is legal. <laughs> oh man um, go ahead Gareth no, I, 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 I just want to ask something because uh, did any of you actually like Hogan because I loved always him. you loved him did you Gareth I sleep with my mother right now and I'd cheer him on I love Hogan 
Um, did, did you? Because when I was a kid, I act like I mean, I was a heel fan, which is a bit which is a bit weird, I guess, because uh, like all my friends like Bret Hart and Ultimate Warrior and stuff, and I was like, sod these guys. Like I I, I like the heels. The, the heels were the ones who had intelligence and tactics, and they they were kind of more like me, you know. Um, and I I I absolutely like I was a hundred percent with Jesse in everything he said about Hogan. And I was just wondering, like, how... Because a lot of Hogan's shtick, especially around that time, 91, 92, is that he'd become a lot more kind of patriotic and American. So I was just wondering if... Uh, uh, what, you know... Alan, and what do you think of Hogan when you were a kid? Well, I didn't mind the patriotism as such, because you'd watch stuff with Rambo and all these kind of, you know, these larger-than-life guys on movies in the 80s that were patriotic and rocky and yeah. and that sort of stuff. So that wasn't a problem to me as such. I, I, the one thing that I always didn't like as a kid with Hogan was he was this fan favourite, but he was he was a whiner and a moaner. And I remember distinctively as well was Royal Rumble 92 to me was the point where I just thought, Hogan, what are you doing? When he got eliminated and he, you know, then helped toss Sid out of the Royal Rumble as well. And I just thought, you know, good guys, you know, to me should be doing that and more people like Bret Hart are like to that point than someone like Hogan so it wasn't anything to do with the patriotism for me as such uh, really and, and John well my first fanzine was called Hulk Who so that probably gives you your answer and that's taken actually from that Royal Rumble where Sid was pointing to a sign in the audience saying Hulk Who from somebody who's also fallen off in it, it's quite strange because I, I didn't specifically like heels um, in fact you know, my first couple of years, the fact that there were people in in my class who liked uh, Ted DiBiase or Jake St. Roberts when he turned heel, that told you what kind of a horrendous town I grew up in, that people would like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but I kind of like, there'd be people I'd like, like an Arn Anson or a Bret Hart, and it was kind of, I was liking them because they were good workers, but I had no concept at the time of what a good worker was. Yeah, I and I kind of, I, I saw that as, you know, I know they're good wrestlers. So I, I knew that, you know, Bret Hart was, you know, probably one of the best wrestlers in the Frozen, which well, it was always kind of so confused in my head, but, but he never wins. And, you know, Hogan somehow always wins. And I kind of rationalised that as, you know, Hogan must win partly just because of size, but also because he cheats as well. And this time you, you have a finish where he threw the ashes in uh, The Undertaker's eyes. So I kind of really resented that as, you know, him sort of like cheating to stay on top when he's meant to be the good guy. Yeah. So uh, back to something y'all talked about probably about 10 minutes ago, but I was very curious about you mentioned gladiators. Was there an English version of that or was that? the American gladiators that I grew up watching. We had both. Sorry. That's, that's interesting because I, I really got into American gladiators and I'll just, I'll just fill in a little bit from where I lived in Georgia. I know a lot of you guys talked about kind of when the fall off happened. And for me, I will say even by 1992, the decline in wrestling was pretty prevalent. I mean, star, star arcade, 1992, uh, emanated from Atlanta and the Omni and I was a fan of the at the time but I had no idea that Starcade was in the Omni I didn't go to the show obviously didn't know anybody that went to the show so I, th I think me and part of it talked to a lot of guys that kind of had a dark period in 93 or 95 mm -hmm. but I would say almost exclusively from the American side of things, that's kind of your hardcores having a down period when the American product was really bad and not necessarily, 
I would say the the complete drop off from a fad. Like I don't know quite when you want to say the rock and wrestling era ended in the U.S., but I would think there was a large gap between WrestleMania six and WrestleMania seven when you could see that pretty uh, pretty grow by a good bit there. I don't know if all of you guys are agreeing with me, but um, my my take is that the peak the peak of popularity in U.S. wrestling. And the peak of popularity in UK wrestling happened at different times. Here, it's 90, like here in the UK, the peak is 91, 92. Um, whereas back in the, whereas in the States, it probably happened 87, 88. And it was really dropping off by the night, by the early 90s there. Would you, would you all agree with that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. with Britain, you, you had uh, an extra year or so that WWF was able to do good business here after things had absolute collapse and it had been sort of slowly sliding from that 89 90 kind of you know each new champion be like oh he's not doing as good as the one before and business is sort of down a bit and then ended up having to drop their c shows at one point so only running two two shows night instead of three but you had this absolute over a cliff in april 1992 when Everything hit at once. You had the sex scandal, the drug scandal. You had Hogan suddenly leaving. You had all the guys were suddenly shrinking because they were having to do legitimate steroid testing. Uh, You had some dodgy uh, kind of uh, booking where you had Savage got the belt from Flair straight away. So there's not so much interest in the house shows. And you had the other shows being headlined by Warrior and Papa Shungo, which didn't go over the houses. So business was literally uh, down by a third in, in just a week. And it was sort of, you know, not to recover for many years. But right around this time after WrestleMania 8, they came over to the uh, UK and Europe. And it was genuinely sold out nearly every night of this tour. Uh, doing kind of, you know, record gates. And so uh, popular was kind of the fans there. They sold so much merchandise. They had to take the company jet, the WWE one, uh, send it back to Stamford across the Atlantic to fill up with more T-shirts and foam fingers to bring back over here and sell. Um, So that's why you had sort of another year. And that's, you know, one of the main reasons you had SummerSlam over here, just for the, that it was still sort of popular and hadn't had this big slump. Um, also, Parv, real quickly, you'll be proud of me because to uh, get in the mood of this show, I'm watching a Premier League uh, match <laughs> that's, that's taking place right now. Don't, don't tell me the score. I need to watch match of the day later. I still do that. I still try to avoid this. But uh, w- which one is it, Chad? Uh, Newcastle versus, I guess, Manchester City. All right. Well, you should see some goals there. City will uh, be hammering. Newcastle. Yeah, there's something just... <laughs> just happened i don't know if you'll watch this game but something just happened in the uh, 33 minute mark and i have no idea i don't understand with the sound off like they had a big discussion and i don't understand uh <laughs> what happened but there you have it uh so now we'll give uh this may not be too brief but it's something i'm really interested in i know parv touched on wcw being on real late at night and the the British TV landscape is something I'm extremely interested in. And I'm going to start with John on this question. Uh, at first, give a brief history, because yesterday I know on that post on Pro Wrestling Only, it was, uh, I, I think it was Daniel that was talking about how World of Sport, I, I, I guess I, it never hit me that World of Sport was just kind of the, the television show, and it 
was comprised of two different promotions. I, I didn't know that with Joint and All-Star. Like, I'd, I'd heard those names kind of tossed around, but I thought they kind of could be uh, tossed around as the same promotion or something. I don't, I don't know. I just never really given thought to that. So if John could kind of describe what the time slot was like for the world of sports stuff, and then uh, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk about, like, what time the WWF stuff and the more Americanized wrestling would come on over in uh, Britain and what the time slot was like, what channel they were on, and so forth. Right, well, Wales of Sports uh, wasn't actually a wrestling promotion or sort of anything, you know, the name of a wrestling show. It was the name that was given to the, the whole afternoon at uh, this time, the two main channels, BBC and ITV, would show sports all afternoon on Saturday. BBC had Grandstand, and that would have sort of several different sports in it. ITV had World of Sports, which was kind of more working class, kind of more uh, obscure sports. It was more kind of a, a dart, snooker, horse racing, a stock car racing. would also be sort of always a, a kind of a, a wacky sports section with kind of these kind of more obscure sports. And then four o'clock was always for wrestling that was like the one constant uh and then at 4:45, you had the results of the football matches which sort of you know in this time when you didn't have you know the internet and things people would tune in to find out what happened in the football uh joint promotions was the kind of controlling body the rough equivalent of the nwa uh from the early 50s onwards pretty much controlled the business and they had uh, the exclusive uh, slot on tv and all star was the main kind of outlaw independent group and then in the end of 1986 the joint promotions contract ended and they switched to a sort of a rotation system where it was mainly still joint but quite a few times a year there'd be a show for all-star and then about half a dozen times over the last two years of wrestling in itv wwf had a slot and that made a, a a real impact because the first show that was shown had a hogan savage lumberjack match from madison square garden so not only were we having twenty thousand fans in the audience which is very different to the kind of venues that were on british wrestling at the time you also had all these guys standing around the ring uh, every time somebody went out you'd have a mass brawl and it was so completely different uh, and sort of much more appealing kind of for young children and then uh, away from the terrestrial tv kind of during most of the 80s uh satellite was kind of non-existent really the uh most of satellite broadcasts if you want to pick them up you had to have a dish that would go in your garden rather than on your house and it would literally be three sort of six to ten foot across and really it was only used for uh people doing uh cable television which sky actually started uh around i think believe 80, 82 83 kind of time and they had wrestling within a couple of years wrestling was one of their their big shows but it didn't really take off till 1989, which was when they launched a new satellite and started making what was called mini dish, which is just a sort of standard satellite dish that you could put on the side of your house. And that's where and the idea of having, you know, multiple channels, more than sort of the four main channels that everybody had really took off. And again, wrestling and American things in general were kind of the big selling points of, of Sky TV. I think Gav mentioned the, the Simpsons was one of the big ones. And certainly wrestling was, you know, seen as one of the big driving points. I'm pretty sure they showed Seinfeld on there as well, didn't they? That was another show that, like, lo- like lots of people haven't seen Seinfeld 
in the UK because it was shown on uh, it was shown there. Um, I just want to mention real uh, quickly. Um, you mentioned those uh, the, the the guy reading out the uh, the football scores, John. That's right. Yeah. For, for any American listeners, this was literally a guy going Manchester City one, Manchester United nil. <laughs> they still don't they still do that? They still do it, don't they? Yeah, it's, uh, in, they've actually have a woman taking over the radio, but it was always, uh, for the way he'd read it out, was some sort of very specific tone. You could tell from the way he read the name of the team what the result was going to be. So it might be Manchester United 5, Manchester City 0. And then if you had a draw, it would be Tottenham 1, Arsenal 1. Uh, the one that everybody always wanted there were these uh, two teams in the, the Scottish League, uh, and everybody dreamed of the day they would have this specific result, which would be East 5-4, 4 far 5. It never happened. Uh, so, Alan, I know you are kind of, uh, you watch the current product, correct? Yes, I do. That's right. And, I, and I'm not sure how much I know Barb watches none. I'm not sure about the other guys. But I guess maybe now you can talk about what the current product uh, is. Is Raw aired live over there at, I guess, what, 1 a.m.? I'm not even sure. Just, I guess, talk about one, uh, what, where the current Raw, SmackDown, so forth airs in the uh, U.K., and also the uh, pay-per-view, because I've always found that interesting and think that might could have helped a little revitalization based off the down period you are talking about, like in 93, uh, kind of a theory I thought about as well, with some of the pay-per-views being available for free, essentially, with Sky, and that you uh, more people, I guess, were getting the satellite, that that would create a lot more awareness for the product. Yeah, I mean, at the time, uh, I need to emphasise, because there's a lot of misconception we got things for free. If you had Sky, you got the pay-per-views for free, but Sky itself, there was a... Um, if you were going to get Sky, if uh, John or Gareth or Parv can correct me, you were paying still something at least £15 a month to get Sky, would you say? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to pay a subscription just to get kind of the Sky channels, and then uh, from about 1992 onwards... Uh, WWF was put onto Sky Sports, which was a, a sort of a further extra charge for each month because it was kind of a premium channel. That was when the uh, the Premiership started. So kind of the English football was uh, redone a lot by money put into it, and Sky TV were having the rights to show a lot of the games. So that kind of made it a, a sort of very attractive channel. And and WWF program was kind of a, a big thing, and that's still there. Twenty years later, they still show. Uh, all, pretty much all of the TV shows. We get NXT as well. And But from 2002, they started gradually putting most of the pay-per-views uh, actually became you know, a pay-per-view event that you would pay for. Even though it's 4 o'clock in the morning, you're, you're paying money to, to watch right. these shows. So I guess then Sky, for our American listeners, it sounds like Sky is kind of the equivalent of a premium type channel you would get like an hbo or showtime or something along those lines is that correct well sky itself there's more than one channel on sky sky uh, probably gareth might uh, explain this but sky itself is the name of the company that has a multitude of different channels i know now if you subscribe to sky you've got access to maybe up to a thousand channels something like that oh i don't know you've got radio and things i think sky's more like a it's, more like, it's, it's a carrier, like, uh, say, Direct TV or something. Okay. Uh, it, 
Uh, and then you've got the um, umbrella channels underneath that. You know, I, I think that when I first got Sky in 1989, um, we had 16 channels, um, but only four of them were actually Sky channels. The rest of them were German or owned by W.H. Smith or something. But about German channels, a lot of wrestling in Britain came from that because we never got WCW pay-per-views for free, but they did on uh, a channel called DSF, which was a German sports channel. So oh. occasionally they just break into it halfway through the commentary, you know, um, and hello to our fans in the UK and English, and then go back to the WCW show. So we got even more wrestling from that. Sadly, what we, we didn't get, not speaking German, but apparently the commentary, which was done by people in Germany rather than working with WSW, was um, kind of a lot more insider. And you'd, you'd have a, a famous time where uh, Ole Anderson had been having one of his traditional arguments with the sheet writers. And I think he sort of opened a, an issue, uh, a public challenge to like the likes of uh, Bruce Bruce Madden and, and Wade Keller and those kind of people, and or Mark Madden rather than Brute Mitchell, where you know they could come and fight him at the WCW power plant because that apparently would prove whether or not they were right. right. Uh, so of course they just completely ignored it. But apparently the German TV people, whenever they'd be doing commentary, but you know, Arn Anderson would come out and go, "Oh, we've got Arn Anderson here, Arn Anderson's brother. I'd fight him. I'd, I'd fight him any time. He's a piece of shit." I didn't. I didn't know that there was this uh, German uh, German channel showing because that was the really frustrating thing for me watching WCW. I never got the pay per views. It'd be like, oh, they're going to have a big cage. The, the Dangerous Alliance are going to be in the War Games, and then like next week, oh, it already happened because I was like, <laughs> it was really irritating. I, I think I the think German was... channels uh, sort of got uh, quite popular over here because the first three or four years of Sky uh, were analog satellite dishes. Uh, so there weren't so many channels. It wasn't till um, I, th- I think it was like the late 90s. They went to kind of digital and you suddenly you had 500 channels and kind of they were all encrypted and you had to subscribe to them. But in sort of the, the 90s, if you had a, a satellite dish, you just stick it up and you could pick up pretty much anything that was being beamed on uh, satellite anywhere in Europe. So obviously you had some great channels from Denmark, uh, especially, you know, quite late at night when your parents had gone to bed. But say you had this, this German uh, DSF channel, and as Gav said, they, they showed pretty much everything. You had WCW program. I think they showed Smoky Mountain at one point. Um, and it was literal, you know, you, you'd never guess what you were going to see on any one night. Yeah, I mean, do you remember the New Year's Eve specials, John? Like, I think on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, DSF would show every single WCW pay-per-view from that year over the 48 hours and 24 hours back to back. So that was a great day of watching if your parents would let you. You know, you got 24 hours of back to back WCW pay-per-views from that year. Wow. And I remember myself trying to trying to follow the schedule as well was it quite hard because I, at the time I, I, I was learning German at school but my German wasn't that great. So a lot of the things I tried to buy, there was a magazine over here called TV and Satellite Weekly and it listed all the foreign channels as well available on Sky, but more often than not, unfortunately, their scheduling and what they thought would be on DSF wasn't on DFS, so I make plans to watch this pay-per-view or do this, that, and the other, and more often than that, I'd switch it on at that time, and you'd have whatever else on German porn or whatever instead of the wrestling, so it was always it was always on at different times. I found it hard to track when it was specifically on to follow it. Yeah, and uh, ITV did that with WCW as well. It was constantly constantly changing like it'd be on four what some night sometimes it'll be on like 1 a.m it, it changed well, and i understand in england it was on because here in wales gareth it was on like super late at night but 
I understand it was on a different slot in England, is that right? Well, John will probably remember this as well. Um, John, around the time, I don't know, were you living in the northwest of England in in the mid nineties or just bef- uh, before? Uh, well, right about this time, I was in in Hertfordshire, so I was actually on the border of the Anglia and London. So I sort of had two different times to watch it. Um, to explain to sort of uh, American viewers, uh, ITV was a network, kind of like an old style NBC, and particularly in this era. It was only really peak time viewing in the, the evening, but you would have the same shows at the same time all around the country. And for the rest of the time, particularly in the afternoons, you'd have a lot more kind of regional variation. You'd show programs that are only shown in one region, and also the time slot was a lot different. So when you sort of ask people about you know, their memories of watching wrestling on ITV, you often end up in kind of heated discussions about who was right about when something was shown and when it wasn't. And it turns out they were getting it at different areas. Uh, if you lived in the Midlands, which was central, you got all the American wrestling there was. In kind of the middle of the night, we, we sort of looked back in listings. They had the uh, the Florida group from the late 80s. They had uh, another Florida group called Global, which was uh, kind of not the, the Texas group kind of forerunner. And they also had uh, AWA, world-class Memphis kind of stuff from 88. Uh, but the, the middle of the night was the kind of the... WCW, NWA programming up until about uh, 1992, which was when Worldwide was shown uh, on a Saturday afternoon in kind of the same kind of slot as Rich Rich needs to be. And that was on for about three years. And uh, it even had uh, kind of highlights of recent pay-per-views. And that was uh, kind of the most exposure WCW ever had over here. Okay. Uh, very, very interesting, and uh, I think a, a little bit different from what a American would, I, I guess the, I guess the landscape in some ways, but but still similar to like I know I've told Parv about where I lived. I had we had a local Atlanta channel called Channel 69 with Joe Pettacino that would show all the wrestling syndicated uh, over the night. Uh, but now we'll transition from that, and let's talk about some of the – when you became a fan, uh, a lot of you guys are around the same time frame, and I'll start with Parv. I know he's he definitely knows, like, who Big Daddy is and people of that mm. ilk, but, uh, but I guess was there any sense that – did you – were you aware of these legend status – from non, I would say, Americanized promotions um, like a Big Daddy or people like that when you first became a fan? Well, it, it was one of those things that to a certain generation of people um, in uh, in this country, if you said wrestling, they the first thing they'd mention would be Big Daddy. Okay, like somebody's dad or something. Like if you mentioned you're going to watch wrestling, they would mention um, Big Daddy or maybe Giant Haystacks. Um Really, I didn't have much of a, like it, it's it's weird thinking back on it on a because because I grew up with the tapes more than anything else. I ne- I never really had Sky. I always had to catch things. Um, it took me a while to realise that all of the pay per views didn't happen at the same time. Like I didn't really have a conception of time when I was a kid. It was like I'd have all of the WrestleManias and all of the SummerSlams. It took me a while to figure out that. There was actually, you know, a five-year gap between WrestleMania one and. Do you know what I mean? Like, it didn't like. It took me a while to kind of 
figure that history part of it out. Right. I think I think for reasons for that as well, when the boom period, a lot of the commercial WWF tapes got released initially in 1991. Yeah. So you had a slew of tapes all at once. You had WrestleMania 1, WrestleMania 2, WrestleMania 3, and you could buy them all at once. So I can understand why you think you know the time frame wasn't yearly or whatever. It was all a bit of a, a jumbled up mess, really, yeah, from our point when, of view. When it was all the same guys, like Demolition were around in 80, you know, in 88 and they were around in 91. So I didn't know that, you know, this was like three years previous. Um, but what I was going to say was, I didn't really have much of a conception of wrestling history at all um, at that point. Um, but I live um, next to the, the, the beach. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a seaside town, a little town called Porthgall in, in Wales. Gareth may know it, <laughs> um, which has got a fun fair there. And uh, literally a stone's throw from my house is a place called the Grand Pavilion. Um, which which is kind of um, it's like it's got like a theatre there and um, it has like particular uh, guests. It, it, it's the sort of venue, uh, Gareth. You may know. You may be the only person you. You know Max Boyce. Oh, I, I know Max Boyce. Grand Pavilion. Uh, just we while wrestling actually still run shows there. The Grand Pavilion Park. Yeah, right. Well, right. And um, every once in a while, when I was growing up, the Grand Pavilion would have a guest like a Big Daddy or someone. So I'd see the poster. And I'd be like, who is it? Like, every once in a while, they do something wrestling-related at the Grand Pavilion. And I never really drew the... Like, I never kind of drew the connection that these guys were, were, were big at some point. Of course, if I could go back, maybe I would have gone to some of these shows. But um, it's, it's like, it's weird when you're a kid. It's like, you, you know, you kind of write things off, don't you, in your, in your head or whatever. So um, I, I guess I had a very vague conception, Chad, but it wasn't very fleshed out and... Really, it took a long time for me to figure out what World of Sport was and Big Daddy and all of that. Uh, I'd say probably as late as like 2000, 2000, 2001, when I got it, when I got on the internet, really, and started really reading reading around things. Uh, Alan, we'll go to you next on this question. Um, really, with World of Sport and kind of that era of wrestling, it was there's quite a rich history of it up here in uh, where I'm from in Blackpool. Uh, they used to run shows a hell of a lot at the Pleasure Beach, which is a seaside kind of uh, amusement park. And you may have seen, I think this featured on a William Regal, uh, one of the DVDs or videos at WWE, really, showing uh, how they would have wrestlers uh, trying to challenge people from the crowd outside the um, the hall um, before shows, trying to get an interest from the crowd. And if a wrestler beat, sorry, if one, some fan beat a wrestler, they would win £10, £20. So there was that going on under my nose uh, as a child, but I never came across any of it. My my memories were always, I've heard of Big Daddy. Big Daddy is, everyone's heard of Big Daddy who's probably listening to this show, being a British wrestling fan or not. But I can't emphasise enough how ingrained Big Daddy was on British culture. As, you know, you mentioned wrestling, you mentioned Big Daddy. Actually, quicker than in America, you'd mentioned Hulk Hogan associated with wrestling. That's how strongly I think he's been ingrained over here. So mm. I'd heard of Big Daddy. I'd heard of Giant Haystacks. But as a child, apart from those two, not a lot. I remember a couple of years later reading about how good Mark Rocco was. Uh, so asking uh, my dad about Mark Rocco, and he hadn't had heard of him. So and my dad had obviously heard of Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks. So I think apart from those two, really, unless you were... A, a wrestling fan in the 70s your parents were in the 60s and the, in the early 80s they're the only two real people you'd have really heard of uh, now John I know uh, 
and I'll give a quick plug here. You did the Wrestling Culture Podcast with our friends Dylan and Dave that went into a lot of the world of sport history and was very informative as kind of a crash course in world of sport. So, but uh, if you can speak briefly on this as well, some of the bigger stars from that time that uh, might've been more recognized by older fans and their late, I guess the, the wrestlers that had the biggest legacy from that world of sport days. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of came to the, the thing. I, I say, I, I watched it, now and again as, as a child but came, came to it more from tapes and then eventually to when we had a wrestling channel launched here on satellite in 2004 and one of their big things was they got access to the, the ITV archive and they ended up showing I think about five hours a week of, of programming and before that um, it was kind of a little bit of tape trading of getting the old British stuff uh, particularly you sort of look back to uh, kind of there was a tape called Famous Faces in the UK that a guy called uh, Dean Ayers put together and that was kind of people who'd become famous uh, in America or Japan back when they wrestled here so you'd have kind of like the likes of a, a Bret Hart or an Owen Hart uh, Jushin Liger when he came here because a lot of the, the Japanese New Japan guys would come here and sort of tour for a year and learn how to kind of play to the crowd and do that kind of British style as well but there are people like a, a Johnny Saint, Jim Brakes, uh, kind of that kind of era guys, uh, Danny Collins later on, Marty Jones, who sort of you know quite well known in the culture, but kind of lost uh, to the sort of the young fans who came along and started watching WWF with kind of no sort of knowledge of this what wrestling used to, used to kind of be on TV. And uh, Gareth, is your uh, history kind of similar to Parv's, or I guess you can discuss any differences you have. Well, uh, it's a bit different, I think, growing up in Wales, because, um, well, when I was growing up, me nine, about uh, my grandmother, she would always talk about uh, Jackie Parlow and Nick McManus and how she would brave for blood over a pork scratchings watching him. And then when we were sports end, luckily we still had a wrestler on uh, Espadarech, uh, the Pork Language Channel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so basically, a lot of people like Giant Haystack appeared on that. Um, even up to, well, I think it finished in 95. And Finley would be the top heel. So, I mean, a lot of the old British stars would be on that. Because it was run by a fella called Oreg Williams. Who, uh, if you don't know much about Oreg Williams, he was Superman in Wales. Uh, he was the head. Well, he wasn't the head. He, he, was a, he was a bard in something called the Yid, which was the Welsh language youth section he was into politics and everything and he did wrestling shows in um, places like Corwen uh, and uh, and um, basically you'd go to that because it was a really big thing in North Wales because Oreg Williams, he's ours okay he's about 55 at the time but he's, he's ours he's the North Wales big daddy and he'd come to all these places and beat Saint Haystacks and beat Pitt Finley and beat somebody dressed up like Don Clown and it was just, so really, we didn't really lose that British wrestling in Wales until about 1995, if you were a Welsh speaker and would watch wrestling. And I guess before we go off this, can we, what was it about Big Daddy that really, I guess, made him a star? Like, I, I, I haven't really read up or, I guess, 
discovered or tried to do some research on it, but if anyone can kind of speak to what was it about him that really made him translate over to the mainstream audience over there? I think it's just he was so kind of different to any wrestler. Uh, he he was like this. He was this old, fat, out-shaped guy who always won. He pretty much did... I believe he did six singles matches in 16 years and pretty much every other match was a, a tag match and he sort of come in for about about two minutes. And when you sort of have this annual debate about, you know, people say you can't have Big Daddy in the Hall of Fame because he's such a bad wrestler and people say, right. oh, no, you can, you know, some people aren't great workers in there. He would be the worst wrestler in the Hall of Fame if he went in by a tremendous margin. I think... I never kind of really thought about Big Daddy as, you know, how kind of bad or, in fact, bad may mean not the word, non-existence worker because he, he sort of did nothing until I watched the, the Dusty Rhodes DVD and watched like 20 Dusty Rhodes' matches and you think, oh, Dusty Rhodes, he's a bad worker and you watch it, it's, they're, they're, they're like in two completely different businesses, they're doing two different jobs because he literally would just come in for sort of the finish and, and do sort of his bad squash. But he was, he was pushed as this kind of cultural hero who would you know always win a kind of you know, the personification of kind of a particular type of of britishness kind of like this really really sort of old kind of cheesy british equivalent to the, the hulk hogan in american culture uh, so he was you know more sort of you know fish and chip supper rather than training his doing his training and saying his prayers and eating his vitamins and everything <laughs> Um, but he did kind of more working class though what the Americans would say blue blue collar though right John kind of like yeah, a working and class it was hero the, the difference with Big Daddy was the way that British wrestling worked is that you would have as many as 15 joint promotion shows around the country every night which of course meant uh, you had to have you know 30 guys at any one time who were capable of headlining a show and selling tickets and so for many years You'd have kind of uh, a Mick McManus or a Jackie Palo were obviously kind of the top stars, but they were still kind of on a level with everybody else. And when uh, the, the Big Daddy push kind of came, he really was pushed as the single guy, the face of wrestling, one who would always win. And of course, you know, he beat all these guys and then they'd have to go and headline somewhere else. It's like, oh, I've just seen you on TV losing in two minutes to this guy. You know, I don't really kind of take you seriously as a, a top star. And it was it was such a, a different uh, kind of approach to promotion. You know, it works in a sense for... Uh, Three years they had him headline you know a big show at Wembley Arena which is like a 10,000 seater building which was so different to have the, the whole promotion built around building up to this one big show doubling ticket prices having sort of people traveling to go there it was so different to the, the idea that wrestling was something that was come to your town if you're in a sort of a decent enough sized town it'd be every fortnight or even every week the same night every week go kind of go along to it out of habit uh, as opposed to building up this big show, this big match that you sort of travel and see as a special occasion. Um, so we will talk about, I guess, the the peak and who we thought was the biggest star of uh, Americanized wrestling in Great Britain in a little bit. But before we do that, I want each of us to touch on how closely you've went back and watched some of the world of sport wrestling. And then also how closely you follow the current indie scene, both there in the UK 
uh, New Japan and Japanese promotions like that and the American indie scene because it does feel like there's a pretty deep contingent uh, both in the United Kingdom of fans of the American indie scene, New Japan, people like that, and uh, no parts answers on the current uh, <laughs> current product. And uh, I just I uh, revealed yesterday on the Pro Wrestling Only board that World of Sport is really now that I think as a fan my last blind spot where I've watched close to zero of it, and it's something I'm very interested to get into. But uh, we'll start with Gareth on how much you've went back and watched the past and then how current you are with the uh, current day, which uh, him being a part of an indie promotion, I would think, would be uh, pretty pretty intensely current with it. Oh, well, you'd think that. uh... (laughs) No, well... As regards going back to watch all the other sport, um, honestly, I haven't done much of it. I, I know it's probably sacrilege to say this being British, but I think it's never really done too much for me. I think because I was weaned on a diet from 1989 of having, well, I mean, if I just say some of the um, promotions we had available at the time to us when I was four or five on satellite, the first wrestling I watched was WCCW, you know, all tapes from that. USWA, NWA, AWA, because all this stuff was on satellite, so I, brought, I was brought up on that. And I suppose I was quite spoiled by it, in a way, because I go back to all the sport, and it really, it really doesn't do too much for me, which is, I sound like a nice asshole saying that, really. Because <laughs> um, it's, it's sacrilege. I, I know it is, and I, I should be better, and I'll try and behave in the future on that. But, um, no, it's... Uh, I don't know. I think it's a disconnect there because it's not what I was used to, and like, I, I fear change. So, um, looking at Will of the Sport, no. And as regards indie promotions these days, ah, well, I, I, I watch a lot of All Star when I can. Um, that's pretty much it. I don't really get so many indie promotions, which I really should actually, but I don't. But yeah, I mean, that's the only watch. Modern WWE, TNF, okay. and uh, what we do really at the moment, which is quite poor when you think about it. Uh, now, Alan, I already know your answer on the uh, current current stuff, but if you can go ahead and answer that question. Yeah, sure. Um, the world of sports stuff, uh, I really started watching it when it appeared on the Wrestling Channel, uh, which was on Sky here in early 2000s, 2001, 2002 onwards, um, and they showed a lot of different footage there. From Previously before that, it was only exposed really through brief matches I'd see through tape traders uh, where they'd put on at the end for me. I'd say, can you put on some World of Sport or some early Davy Boy Smith as Young David or some of the guys that went on to do something you know, further in the business outside of the UK. I was always intrigued to see what where, where they came from and what they did. And also, uh, it was touched on as well with um, people like Owen Hart and Bret Hart, well, the, all the Hearts in general, and the Japanese guys that they brought over um, to train initially as well, like Jushin Liger and, um, and whatnot. So I think 2001, 2002. And then it's one of those things I... It's something it's hard to get into, and I appreciate that certain fans will look at it once and see how it's shot and how it looks on TV and, you know, it, even some of the stuff from America in the 70s and 80s looked better and um, better lit and than, than that stuff. Um, but 
I still now I'll, I'll dip in and I'll try and follow. There's a guy who um, some of the listeners may have heard of called uh, OJ Otani's Jacket. Yeah. Um, and I think him he he is I believe part of. Is he from New Zealand? Um, I th- 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 this is Daniel, right? Uh, um, yes. It, I think he is. Yeah. He, 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 I think he. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, is he from from New Zealand or does he, does he just live there? I think he, well, he lives there now because I was um, I've spoken to him about uh, trying to arrange a chat with him and um, he posts some fantastic reviews of matches and and puts over specific uh, wrestlers. So there's someone I think that he mentioned a while ago called Terry Rudge yeah, who yes. um, gets a lot of love um, and he was putting him over as one of the greatest of all time. So I've really not seen much exposure and I'd spoken and I mentioned something on Twitter uh, and John picked up on this. And I got all this, uh, a set of Terry Rudges. Uh, John recommended uh, me to get some. And watching that stuff is phenomenal. And just someone that hardly gets any love outside of really niche, niche, niche fans. Someone like that. And then from there, I will then read more reviews. And then from from Daniel and kind of develop a different taste and um, go down different routes from thanks to him, really. I mean, sometimes, like, I mean, I'm a, I work in a university, and I, like in universities, people have different disciplines and things. And I know, I know, this is pro wrestling, um, but sometimes PWO does feel like, you know, there are different guys with different specialities, and OJ really is one of the go-to guys for world of sport. Um, it, we, we, everybody would agree with that, right? There are different people who have different kind of like extreme niche interests, and he's. He has really championed a lot of the uh, a lot of the British workers over the past couple of years. Really, he does really detailed reviews and summaries and things. Um, but I think it's on a lot of people's to do list. Um, I think we should also stuff. say about uh, a tiny jacket is he's I don't know who his supplier is because he's getting a, a lot of the tapes that have not been shown on uh, the wrestling channel and Men and Motors. Uh, he's even got some kind of uh, broadcast stuff from the, the 1960s, which is uh, we we thought was very hard to get a hold of. So I'd, I'd love to know where he's getting hold of it. Yeah, but he's know comprehensive. He gets, he gets some of it from um, a guy called uh, Carl, who tra- do trades. Who I got the Terry Rudge discs off. Yeah. He's got a large cast, like some of you may have heard of. So he gets some from there, but I've never really asked him it's, where else he gets it from. Well, obviously, uh, he and I have had quite a few. Uh, PM chats as a lot of people on PWO have with me and um, he um, I, they're quite pricey uh, from what I his supplier is of the on the kind of premium end of the of the trade we're talking upwards of seven pounds a disc which is ex- you know very expensive considering I mean what's the going rate on oh, some of those UK boards like 50 you you're <laughs> showing you're showing your youth there you're a, you're yeah. a tape trader for 1980s when it was yeah, in seven seven pound three hours and eight pound four <laughs> no, hours for tape was, I, was were going get, great then. I guess what I mean in the in the current climate, <laughs> oh, yeah. in the current market, it's very expensive, right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so to put ITV into context, uh, ITV itself does have a lot of stuff. Uh, from sort of early in the seventies, we believe most of the library that was kind of made available to uh, the wrestling channel and so on for, for licensing is everything they have on videotape, which we think is pretty much everything that was recorded for later showing that wasn't shown live. That kind of matches up with the. We have a, a website called itvwrestling.co.uk that has all the listings and results from everything we have from the ITV shows. Um, 
so they they have all the stuff kind of on on tape that was recorded and everything else live was kind of what exists is on film and unfortunately itv have that in an archive but they charge a couple of hundred pounds to literally uh real sort of roll up a tape let you look through and see what is on it just to find out what is on on it and put the uh, listening together and then they charge uh, another sort of several hundred pounds if you want to get a copy of it and that's kind of for your personal use only and you can't sell it you can't trade it and you know you'd, you'd be sued if you passed it on to anybody else so it's incredibly frustrating to know how much of it is is out there and that's actually where the uh, Nick McManus Jackie Palo uh, cup final day match sort of one of the more famous matches uh, was kind of uh, taken by one of the wrestlers a few years ago, got that converted tape and sort of showed it at the wrestlers' reunion. And clips from that were shown on the BBC documentary. And it's mm. kind of incredibly frustrating to know there's this this whole show here. And I see we have it. And why they can't just you know maybe before Cup Final Day one year just replay this thing? I think it would do better than whatever else they they have in in that slot just for sort of the nostalgia and interest in seeing it. How how come ITV kept all those tapes? Because it's kind of like uh, you know they've lost like you know famously like uh, um, episodes of Doctor Who and also the Top of the Pops and you know all of these things were taped over. But um, ITV kept all of the World of Sports stuff. Uh, I think it was because they uh, licensed it to kind of a lot of countries around the world. Uh, So they kind of needed to keep the tapes to sort of send copies of it to sort of obscure countries in kind of, you know, Africa and South America and the Middle East and so on. I suspect that's why they've kept a lot of it. But it seems to be uh, it may also be by the time they started keeping it on tape, it was a a lot cheaper, whereas the BBC stuff was more kind of the the 60s and early 70s where it was... uh, sort of very expensive to keep so they'd keep sort of one thing one show in free sure and any do we know any really particular reason why they just keep harboring the footage or is it just because they have it and don't want to release it yeah i mean they uh they don't want to sell it at all they're sort of only really interested in in licensing it for a fee uh, I think the last that I'd heard, uh, the start of last year, uh, the, the former wrestling channel, the people who ran that, who also ran sort of men and movies, had, had had sort of a license for a few years. Uh, it, as far as I know, now belongs to a guy called uh, John Chapman, who was actually incredibly cheeky because a lot of the world of sport trademarks uh, – had been not used by ITV for a certain amount of time and actually reverted to belong to the crown, believe it or not. Uh, so he went along and sort of bought up the rights to kind of world of sport, world of sport wrestling and like the, the sort of phrase about use and then immediately licensed them back to ITV uh, kind of with the condition that he'd be able to sort of use them. He sort of licensed a lot of the footage with the idea of uh, sending it on iTunes and it's not really, doesn't really seem to have taken off and it's kind of gone a bit quiet since then. Okay. And Alan, I guess you can uh, finish up talking about now current day and what type of uh, promotions you're watching, how much wrestling you're watching and so forth. Um, I try and keep up with uh, the current products in America, be, well, WWE anyway, and even trying to watch all that, you're talking eight, seven, eight hours a week, so I'll digest as much of that as I can, I've given up on TNA, um, completely given up on TNA, so I won't even Smart bother. Smart man. 
I won't even bother getting. I, I, I think I've been see them live, and even seeing them live, they put a bad taste in my mouth. So it's just not do, for me. Um, I just want to d- d- jump in here because this came up on the board the other day. Um, I, d- I don't know if you guys saw saw that. It's been in the. Uh, I think it was in that thread when we were talking about WWE Network, where I was like, I don't believe this is coming here until I see it because um, it just seems too good to be true. <laughs> and I, um, but uh, somebody in there said um, that TNA outdraws WWE here because it's on challenge and I was just having like a look at the figures and things and um, I saw like you know old episodes of Bullseye and Catchphrase and things also outdraw Raw Um, so I'm just like is TNA that popular here is it like how does anybody have a sense because I I have to take that claim with a pinch of salt that TNA is really popular in this country that I think it's just because it's on. Challenge is available to 95% of the population, at least. You know, so you're going to get people just watching it because it's some... But, but yeah. like, if, if you look at the way those ratings are done, Gareth, it's like, um, so people who had Challenge on for three minutes, at least, okay? And, like, 100,000 people yeah. plus had an old episode of Bullseye on from 1986. 100,000 people plus had an old episode of catchphrase on you know so it's like are these people really sitting down and watching it or have they just left the channel on when they're going off to make a cup of tea or something i, I don't i mean i it's just a question i guess but two things also to remember with the the ratings uh when you say tna is outdrawing wwe that means the highest rated episode of tna is outdrawing the highest rated episode of raw i would say there's there's kind of two caveats to that one is that uh, TNA really should be outdrawing and Raw because it is available free of charge on all these homes and and Raw is on a, a satellite channel. Um, the other one is that TNA pretty much has two showings a week for the premiere showing on the Sunday night and I think it's repeated on a Tuesday or Wednesday, whereas Raw is repeated several times and of course it's its first showing is from one o'clock till four o'clock in the morning. So obviously you, you're not really kind of comparing like to like. And I think that's a good point, really. And I think, to be honest, the average person on the street who you mentioned wrestling to, or American wrestling, I would be very surprised if anyone mentions any current TNA person or anyone from the last few years, really, in TNA. Um, still now, you can still kids... I, I've seen kids with John Cena T-shirts on and, and things like that. So I think the wrestling fans in America, it's the similar over here that, you know, if you're a real, if you're a real wrestling fan and you're into it, you're still going to follow WWF and you're still going to go to their shows over TNA. Okay, um, now we'll talk about, I guess, the peak period of American wrestling uh, infiltrating into the UK. And so we'll start with Pard, because I know he's essentially wrote a dissertation on this topic. But uh, SummerSlam 1992, uh, what I guess just uh, everything about that. Memories, who do you think drew the, uh, who drew the gate, so to speak? Uh, do you think this was the peak of American wrestling in the UK, or was it eclipsed later on in something in the Attitude Era? Uh, take it away, Parv. Um, yeah, well, I'd, I've just shared the link around from because I know it's, it's buried in a in that um, serious greatest of all time candidates uh, thread there. But um, I had this, uh, I had this, uh, I guess, notorious uh, theory at some point that um, a British Bulldog was not responsible for drawing. Uh, SummerSlam uh, 92. I I thought well basically it was the it was the product. It was just the fact that wrestling was that over. So you can't 
my idea, my thesis, my hypothesis, I guess, is that you can't credit uh, Davy Boy Smith with that gate, okay? Um, and PWO being PWO, you know, you, you can't make claims about backing them up. So I, I actually went and I really kind of looked at all of the results, um, all of the European shows um, that they did, not just in uh, the UK, but uh, in Spain and other places as well, um, from kind of 92, 90, 91, 92, 93, just to see how... Uh, Bulldog was positioned and um, how Brett was positioned because um, I, I also had this idea that Brett Hart was really popular like he was like I'd say after about I don't know he seemed I, I, would everybody else agree with this like in school Brett Hart was you know like a lot of people had him as their favourite wrestler even in 92 would you agree with that? Mm. Gareth? Uh well, I was just blind with my man love for Hulk Hogan, really. So anything else, <laughs> you know, I, I no, I, I don't know. It, it, I, 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 my my memory was that a lot of people like had like Bret Hart kind of lunch boxes and pencil cases and stuff like that, and uh, Warrior too. I mean, he he was big as well. So I guess I, I mean I had this idea that uh, so I wanted to test it out. I, I I did have a look through all of the all of the different um, uh, results. And the conclusion really is that um, Bulldog was built on those tours pretty well. He was positioned in uh, kind of battle royals and um, progressively kind of was placed higher and higher up the card. Um, but the thing that I couldn't help but notice is that you did have shows selling out with main events like Undertaker versus Sid Justice, 11,000 people uh, in, in Wembley Arena. You had an, an, um, Money Inc. versus the Bushwhackers, 7,000 sellout in, uh, in, in Germany there. So it was like, it, it did seem that the product was hot, so that whatever main event you put there seemed to draw. Um, but Davy Boy was clearly one of the big stars i don't know john would you have anything to to, to say to this Who yeah i mean positioning wise he was certainly done at the top and kind of particularly if you compared it to like mistakes so you'd always have if you say had a, a poster or something or you had a a range of you know lunch boxes or pencil cases or whatever you you might have three people it would be hogan warrior and british bulldog he was kind of in the uk was positioned as as a top guy but i mean certainly there was a, a degree at the time of the, the brands uh selling out but it was kind of they they were linked together he was like a key part of the, the brand over here yeah and um what about uh some of the other guys like um i mean the thing that I noticed, though, is that I didn't notice any discernible drop-off in numbers, regardless of who who was headlining the show, really. Like, it could be, like, uh, Legion of Doom, for example, seemed to draw pretty big against the uh, Nasty Boys. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't really matter who was in the main event. It, is that kind of oversimplifying it a bit? I mean, it, they, they were kind of all, like, uh, Bret Hart versus Rick Martel... Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. Like you, you could put anyone. Like I said, the Bushwhackers were there. Uh, Shawn Michaels versus Bob Backlund was another main event they had. Um, and it just seemed to sell out wherever. It Mr. Perfect versus Lex Luger, eleven thousand sellout at Wembley Arena. It's like um, 
Bret Hart versus Bam Bam Bigelow. Did it did it matter who was in those main events, or was it just the fact that American wrestling was absolutely at the peak of its popularity? I think a, a lot in particularly that kind of era, um, because they were doing these these tours in advance, you didn't so much have uh, a lot of uh, publicity of these are going to be particular matches you'll be seeing on the show. It was more, you know, these are the people on the tour. Um, they did a lot of the time, once it got really big, sort of 92, 93, where you'd have two tours a night, uh, sort of uh, with like the different venues. But um, Davy Boy really, uh, it wasn't till about till really some time nice too. But I think was kind of pushed in a in a headlining slot in in Britain. He was, as you say, he kind of worked his his way up the cars. He was always sort of top two or three matches below, you know, like a Hogan or the Savage or someone. Uh, and it would kind of depend on the, the kind of a venue, whether they were running show in the States the same night, uh, and also whether they were running sort of smaller venues or something. 1993, uh, although they were running huge amounts of, of tour, tours over here and running, you know, maybe 20 or 30 shows a year between the tours, they were also running some fairly small buildings, you know, Exeter, Whitley Bay, Ice Rink and so on, places like that, that were sort of, a, you know, three or 4,000 do, do, do you think SummerSlam 92 would have drawn 80,000 people if Davy Boy hadn't been there? Um, I think it, it wouldn't, uh, but because if it, if he hadn't been there, I, I don't think I think he was a key part to WWF being so popular. Right. In, yeah. in, the, in the first place, uh, the idea that you had kind of, you know, this, this British star who was there. And I think it's a, it certainly helped and, and made the atmosphere, but it, it was part of you know a, a sort of a multi-match kind of of, of drawing there I, I always I mean my take was that always that 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 particular match was kind of a match for the night for the crowd who were there you know if you're in Wembley and there's a guy coming out with the Union Jack doesn't matter who he is he's going to get massively massively cheered right um I mean and obviously Davy Boy was a was a big star as well um, so I mean that's one thing. It's obviously going to be it's great for the actual evening itself, who, for anybody who's there to have that as the main event and that particular finish. Um, but I also had this idea that it's kind of like it makes for a neat narrative to send back to the states. You know, here they are in London, and here's the British bulldog doing his thing in his home town type thing, and that's something that they, they could have related to. You know, anybody watching it, you know, wherever they were in New York or Georgia or wherever they were. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it also helped a lot with the uh, sort of media publicity in advance of the show. Um, it, that was built as kind of you know, one of the big matches, and you, you kind of go to the newspaper's story, you know, not just we're doing wrestling at Wembley Stadium, but there's a British guy going for sort of you know the big title in in the main event. Yeah, yeah I mean, one of the um, one of the kind of mysteries to me is that, like how did how did Vince pull that off? How did he sell out Wembley? Any any uh, because it just seems like incredible that, like, you know, how many people had Sky versus how many people were at that show. It just seems amazing to me that that show sold up, well, you know, he almost sold out Wembley. I think I mean, what... Sorry, go on, John. I was going to say, an uh, important thing to remember, of course, is because uh, the peak of wrestling there was driven so much through it by being a fad, you did have a lot of cases where it was children who wanted to go to the show, so they'd have to take a parent with them. So that's, you know, double the number of seats there. Uh, being sold and I think a degree of it was kind of uh, you know self-fulfilling really the fact that you were having this big show at Wembley 
you then you want to go along to see it because it's going to be a, it has to be a big show it seems like a big thing and you know you're going to be part of this this big crowd kind of helps you sort of build up to the you know 70 or 80,000 or so and I think what helped it as well was uh, the tabloid media in the UK got behind it a little bit. Um, so they were doing posters. I think the Daily Mirror did a centre spread pull out of, of Davy Boy Smith and they, they put over the show in, you know, the national media, some of the biggest uh, papers in the UK. So I think that definitely would have helped for je- the general fan or the general fan of wrestling to, to, to know about the actual show where it was uh, taking place. Uh, how aware, Alan, were you of SummerSlam 92? Did you watch it live? Um, I didn't watch it live. It wasn't... I can't remember when, when I watched it. I remember um, getting a tape of it because I didn't have Sky at the time, so it was always family friend would tape it for me. I, I was aware of it, but um, it wasn't still at that point where I'd have said, it's on on this Saturday or it's on on this Sunday. When it, it was on the Saturday, I believe, but it, I, I wouldn't have known it was that specific Saturday. Um, so it wasn't something that was completely must-see for me, maybe because I was up here in the north of England. It, maybe I knew that I wouldn't be able to go, so I didn't even think about it. And Gareth? Um, uh, I watched it on Sky, but um, no, I, I, I wasn't there in Wembley. I think, again, like, like Alan living more north geographically, I think the chance of my parents taking me there would be slim to nil. Yeah, we're, we're, this is the this is the UK, Chad. So like a two-hour drive is a massive ordeal to a lot of people. Yeah, I know you always <laughs> make fun of me. Uh, I, I, have, I have a it can be the the least amount of time a sixty-minute commute to work every morning, and then sixty minutes every afternoon. And and Parv always acts like that's some massive undertaking <laughs> that I'm doing. <laughs> like I'm, I'm really traveling. Uh, John, do you want to speak a little bit? Uh, you said you were live there, correct? That's right, yeah. I was, uh, would have been 16, just coming up 16 at the time. So luckily I had some, uh, the fanzine that I wrote for had some uh, older friends working on it. So I, I went along with them. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, a, you know, amazing experience. Just 80,000 people watching watching a wrestling show, even though it was, you know, just watching these little little dots in the ring sort of throwing each other about and you know you weren't quite sure what the move for the main event was but I, I do remember that uh Bret Hart was cheered by quite a fair, I'd say probably about 15 percent of the, the audience and you had like the, the Julian chance of you know the bulldog hit man bulldog hit man um which was like I always look back on on that and that was you know people genuinely wanting you know one of the, the other kind of two to to win and that's sort of quite odd in in that era uh when it was traditionally always you know baby face or everybody on the, the same side of the audience and and do we think that was the absolute peak of american wrestling in the uk or was it eclipsed later on well i think there were probably two peaks actually for sort of mainstream uh, appeal you had certainly that the, the kind of that was like the the pinnacle of like the initial sky thing but also in uh 2000 for a couple of years channel 4 which was one of the mainstream channels that everybody got like a bbc and an itv they started showing uh heat uh every sunday and they showed some of the uh i think four of the pay-per-views each year they would show live uh which meant and this was 
like the last year or so of kind of the attitude era peak in the states so you had uh certainly a lot of kind of merchandising a lot of kind of more older fans like teenage late teens early 20s kind of getting to it so kind of buying kind of more expensive kind of merchandising like t-shirts and and so on and there's kind of a, a famous story of the first time it was was shown over here uh the royal rumble was live on channel four and they'd they'd really not thought this through at all because uh, they spent the whole of the afternoon on heat basically as good as saying hey kids we're, show- we're watching Royal Rumble tonight stay up and watch it late it'll be great and of course this is a show that had you know people going through uh, tables you had a barbed wire baseball bat you had Mae Young getting something out of her, her out of her top don't even want to think about what it was she was getting out um, uh, so of course you know that was uh, you know not something that uh, you're really meant to be showing a, an audience when you've encouraged young children to I record it stay up late. The other problem was obviously a complete lack of communication. They hadn't realised that it's a live three-hour show from the states with no commercials in, and this was a commercial channel. Uh, so they were sort of watching it. The directors were just kind of guessing when in this show they could stick a commercial in to get them all in there, um, and. You know, at one point actually went to a commercial break mid-sentence from a rock promo which which didn't get over well so after that they had to show the show on about an hour's delay uh, so they could you know take anything out uh, that was like not suitable <laughs> for even at 2am what was kind of seen as a family audience and put all the commercials in and that kind of a, for death and else it was only like a, a two-year contract before it uh, came back but the legacy of that is actually why you still have the uh, four shows a year that aren't on sky box office here because they're kind of different cycles of uh, the contracts wow and i this is the last one i had but i in my uh, template i kind of put an example but i guess then we'll start with part on this just some differences from stuff that may resonate more with uk wrestling is and stuff that wouldn't resonate as much. I mean, I'm sure like American patriotism, for instance, wouldn't resonate as much to the UK as it might here. But but I uh, I kind of put the example of the employee boss complex of the Austin McMahon feud. So it was that very over and kind of the working system in the UK at the time. Or, or any other examples you can think of of something that. Just, I guess just differences in this. We're watching the same product, but something that would resonate more for you or less for you. Um, this, that's an interesting question uh, to ponder, I think. I mean, one of the things um, that was always really jarring to me is that if you ever do get, you know, if you ever do get British Bulldog or um, William Regal or something, to, to hear the British accent on the American show, it takes always, it's, do you know what I mean by that? It's kind of like a like for a couple of seconds there, it's a little bit jarring, and then because you're realizing that this guy's you know from Manchester or something, um, and it kind of sounds weird in the context. Do you guys know what I mean by that? No, I agree with that. It does sound when you've got his thick uh, northern accent or um, the British bulldog um, talking on the time on TV with all these slick American talkers, it did stand out a bit to me. <laughs> I'd say the bulldog's accent is bizarre. Well, if you look back at SummerSlam, he was sorted, wasn't he? Say that again, Gareth. Well, he was going to win whether he wanted to or not anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. 
Um, I, just, just uh, I want to go back a tiny bit, Chad, because um, one of the weird. Could, do you remember when we talked about uh, things dying a death in around King of the Ring time? Well, one of the odd little findings I found um, when I was going through that research was that um, Hogan had a little tour with uh, Yokozuna in August of 1993. And all of those shows sold out. I couldn't believe that. I was like, they they, they, uh, they did a show with 10,000 people in Sheffield, August the 6th, 93. Um, so do you think there's any chance that we um, that it didn't die as much as we think it did? <laughs> uh, or, or with people just turning up to see Hogan there? I think maybe just to see Hogan. I don't know. I did like you said the example of King of the Ring time, and then uh, the UK version of the Gladiators coming in. I think around that time you'd still have people wanting to see the names, but it was dropping off significantly at that point. I feel. I, okay, no, sorry. I just wanted to note that because it was uh, one of those weird little kind of like just Hogan being in WF in August of nineteen ninety three is very right. late. it's very late for him. Um, in terms of the other stuff, I I, I actually think that the, the the Austin McMahon stuff is probably quite universal. I mean, anybody can, anybody who's uh, had a boss they don't like or something can probably um, relate to that. The stuff I always struggle with personally, but I realise that I'm not really representative of uh, you know the average Brit. I'm quite a strange guy. <laughs> um, I I could never like I hated people like Jim Duggan. I did I didn't understand why anybody would ever cheer for him because he was basically an idiot you know um right. and i i never understood that kind of like i kind of like the the, the dumb baby face the, the the idiotic baby face and why that was something to be cheered but i don't know like maybe maybe the, some of the guys here like jim duggan I, I don't know john did you like jim duggan when you were growing up oh god no i mean that was that was hogan to the extreme wasn't it but i remember the for one night only pay-per-view over here it was for the kind of time that before that you know British people would always kind of cheer for Jim Duggan and, and so on but they sent the Patriot over here for on the undercard of that show and he got booze out of the building and that was you know clearly not in the plans <laughs> uh, Alan did you, did you like Jim Duggan growing up? No not at all I remember um, the Royal Albert Hall show uh, from the end of 91 where they had the Battle Royal and they were talking about oh, Jim Duggan, I remember Bobby Heenan saying if he won the Samovar Trophy, which was this weird trophy that the winner would get, he would get um, jelly, uh, peanut butter and jelly all over it um, because that's what he eats. And I just thought, why do people cheer this guy? And, you know, the commentators are saying, you know, he's, he's a dumb, clumsy, you know, fool. And I was the same as you, Pav, that I just thought, no, don't, don't get him at all. I liked him when he caught his board. When he threw it in the air and he caught it. That's the one thing I liked about him. That was about it. Gareth? I like Jim Duggan. I thought he was ace. He's <laughs> <laughs> big bloody lummox. WrestleMania 5, he's wrestling with a big lot of snot hanging out of his nose. Up the <laughs> <laughs> it's every single dog that lives near me. You know, it's all these bloody cretins. But they're nice cretins. You know, OK, they're a bit stupid and they're cross-eyed. But they're all right, essentially. And I mean, that's why I like Duggan. He was just a everyman character. I like everyman character. You know, he, <laughs> there was no airs and graces. He, you know, he'd buy your pint. Probably beat his wife behind closed doors. But um, otherwise, yeah, he's a man's bloke. Chad, do you have any insight into the appeal of Jim Duggan? Do you think it's the same as uh, as what Gareth was saying there? Yeah, well, I think, I think it's... Uh, if you're a kid, he's kind of... Uh, 
I would say Duggan, if you're a kid growing up, he has a lot of traits that are very easy to latch on to. I mean, I mean, he's chanting USA. If you're an American kid, you, you know, you say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning in school. So you get a little bit of patriotism injected then. So yeah, I'll channel on USA with him. He's, he's got a big two by four. He stands tall. He brawls. Uh, I, I think that's probably his most endearing traits, but I, I was never a huge fan of him as a kid, but I did kind of have a, a guilty pleasure sense of him. If I can jump in on the, uh, we're talking about the, the what sort of cultural parts of wrestling don't really translate. For one, the American, particularly WWE wrestlers, never, never understand is the insulting the local sports team which never works over here because if you go to say a show in Cincinnati you know 95% of the people there are going to be fans of the Bengals so if you know you slag off the Bengals you're going to get a cheer you you come out in Bengals shirt you're going to get uh, get cheered over here uh, <laughs> you you have a lot of the towns are a lot kind of a lot closer together so you'll get people will drive from one city to another might go from you know, drive from Liverpool to go to show at Manchester uh, a lot of uh, big cities have kind of two professional sports teams in the same league. And also yeah, at the top level, you, you have much more of a culture of people don't necessarily support their local team. So, I mean, if you come out to a show in Manchester and either, you know, wear a Manchester United shirt or come out and attack Manchester United, you're just going to get complete confusion from a crowd who sort of, you know, will not give you the, the kind of response you're looking for. So it's just please, you know, any, any American wrestlers listening to this, just give it up. Though <laughs> I will say, actually, some of the good ones I've, I've had over the years was um, we went to the Albert Hall show in 1995, and we had uh, much better. I think they had some good agents who'd gone out and done their, their local knowledge. So we had King Kong Bundy came out and gave us, you know, Rugby World Cup score updates. So that was great. And then you had, I, I actually <laughs> wow. found out, IRS came out and announced that the Prime Minister had resigned, which was kind of, you know, great to get your, you know, your, your news from, from IRS. And, you know, this is the time he, he hadn't actually resigned as Prime Minister. He'd resigned as a conservative leader and was, you know, kind of inviting a, a challenge from kind of people who'd been whispering against him. But, yeah, that was quite, quite a bit of you know, breaking news at the Albert Hall. That's amazing. <laughs> I was just wondering... To... Sorry, go on, Gareth. That should be a gimmick for somebody, that should. I mean, it's like bad news, bad, only not shit. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask Chad himself, what you growing up as a fan, the UK guys that came over to the US, is there any that stood out, or did you all kind of group them together as guys with a funny accent? Um, I, uh, I, I like Davey Boy, but... I, I, I mean, he certainly wouldn't have been my favorite. You know, I, I saw him as, you know, like a guy I would cheer, but kind of in the mid mid range there my dad really loved regal when he would watch regal uh, you know when especially when regal was doing the aristocratic uh, angle when he first came on in wcw and would have kind of his his nose stuck in the air uh, my dad really got over with that so kind of by virtue i really paid attention to him more uh, because my dad would always watch casually with me, uh, never a huge fan. So when he really kind of latched on to someone like Regal or Rick Rude earlier, I kind of, by association, became more attached to them. So I, I, I've really always been a big fan of uh, Regal. So those are probably, I guess, the two most uh, the two most well-known that I know right offhand that I've kind of paid attention to. 
just on the subject of regal, things that don't translate, how about Bill Dundee? <laughs> yes, yeah, Sir William. Sir William. <laughs> <laughs> with, that, with that accent that he had? Oh, God. <laughs> um, what, what are my thoughts on Regal? Like, I always, like, naturally, as a heel fan, I just loved him from the very first second that I saw him. But uh, anybody, uh, anybody got any thoughts on William Regal? Well, for me, it was it was announced from Blackpool, England. So when I was watching Worldwide on Granada here on ITV in '93 when he debuted, and he announced he was from Blackpool in England, um, I was just wow, this who's this guy? Um, and at first, when he was first brought in, he was brought in more as a jobber, more than with the Lord gimmick. So he was losing quite a few matches, and I was rooting for him every single week, and it was kind of like what you know in america you'd have a local guy and you'd root for him so it was nice that i had that kind of experience of rooting for him and then when he actually started winning and then he turned heel i just loved it because he was being announced from blackpool every week yeah i think my first memories of regal well originally my first memories of him were on the wrestler where he was steve jones from cardiff but he couldn't speak so you know <laughs> he was english but then obviously from there i think the first time i saw him after that we found out he was called steve regal not steve jones was um, that match against Barry Windham when he was a uh, babyface and he wore his red underpants with his back on him and I thought he's fucking brilliant you know it, it went about 15 minutes which is a long time watching Worldwide when you're yeah. eight on and, and ever after that I thought he was the man you know yeah, that's a very interesting match to watch in retrospect, like right very early into his run. And like you said, he's a baby face. And I think that would be an early indication of a match that really kind of made him uh, came on the scene. John, any thoughts on Regal? Yeah, I mean, one thing I remember of his sort of early times in WCW was the Marquis of Queensbury series with uh, with Ric Flair. Which yes. <laughs> I think was meant to be based on kind of British rules, but it, it was kind of a, a bit of score because it was it was uh, a best of five five minute matches. So it was kind of rounds, but each each round was a different week, and you had judges. And I think there's some kind of rule about what moves you could Craig do. Pittman was a judge. Yeah, Craig Pittman. Yeah, with his uh, you know his his MMA background as it is supposedly meant to be at the time. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of you know very different to kind of what was on on TV at the time. But certainly, yeah, love love kind of Regal's work and his, his stuff over the years. And I actually um, interviewed him in 1996 uh, backstage at Shirt uh, Croydon when he was doing this little gimmick where he was TV champion. And they sent him off to he worked for kind of All Star for a few months. I think he went and did a German tournament, uh, went over to New Japan uh, and was kind of defending the belt as he went round with kind of the idea of, you know, he was a, a world tourist. Um, I was kind of I have interviewed him backstage uh, for Sucker Punch was a fanzine at the time. It had been a really interesting interview uh, with him, kind of like got, got a lot of good insight into how it works. I mean, the interview wasn't actually helped by the other guy who was with his. His first question was, when did you find out wrestling was a work? Which, uh, <laughs> you know, didn't quite go down down well as, you know, kind of a, a, a bit of a, a forward question. Uh, but the, the reason I kind of remember this, like, you know, really lucid, inter informative interview is when I read back his book and it's from a period he has absolutely no memory of because he was absolutely off his head on all kind manner of uh, illicit substances at the time. Yeah, that's, a, that's a kind of a dark, dark period of uh, Regal's because um, there's a there's a shoot interview with uh, him around kind of 97, like in between. I think, isn't it isn't it in between? Like he has a period where. 
he wasn't contracted to WCW for a while and then he goes back. Is is that right? Have I got that wrong? Well, yeah. I mean, he did the real man's man in 98 with the WWF. And then he kind of has a little dark period there. And then he comes back uh, to WWF. Oh, so it's more like 98 kind of time? Uh, Yeah, like late. Late, uh, well, actually, 99 to into 2000. We do have to say, in, in amidst all the praise that uh, William Regal was in the worst single match ever on ITV Wrestling, which was a, a six-man tag uh, that was a, it was a blow-off to kind of one of a few sort of long-running storylines. There was a guy called uh, Charles McGee, who was a, a ringside manager and would repeatedly bring people in to try and uh, wrestle Big Danny and defeat him, obviously all in failed, and it ended up with his six-man tag where Charles McGee finally had to wrestle himself, and it was the absolute worst match <laughs> you have ever seen. Uh, with it ended up with uh, Charles McGee taking uh, like a, a shoulder block and a splash from Big Daddy, and it's like the most half-hearted thing you've ever seen. It's just like the way he lays down is just he he he's absolutely tragic, lying down at you know what's happening here just how sound pathetic it is and kind of the reason that that sort of remembered as such a terrible match is that the very next week was the first time they started showing other promotions the week after that you had the all-star uh, debut which had uh, i think rocco was on the show i know the opening match had a, a very young jushin liger as fuji yamada the main event was the, the infamous disco ladder match with kendo nagasaki against clive myers that had uh, a gold disc at the top of ladder you had to get um and it was in a nightclub and join the match you had classical music playing and the disco lights going and then the week after that was the uh the first wwf show with the hogan savage it was uh certainly very different to this you know t- uh, just horrendous big daddy match where sort of everyone was just going through the motions um but that was all I had, Parv, did you have any other topics or anyone else that anybody wanted to bring up? Um, there's something I wanted to bring up, and I just we talk here in a broad sense with uh, everyone getting into US wrestling, but what one thing or one person do you guys feel took you from watching WWF, watching WCW, and the odd stuff you'd catch on Sky, uh, all the different territories that would pop up from time to time, to actually becoming a hardcore fan and getting the Japanese stuff and all the other stuff. I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what kind of made you, what helped you change into more of a hardcore fan. I mean, for me, it would be tape trading. Uh, I went to a, well, I'd, I'd seen in a magazine the listing of a guy called Nick Higdon, uh, who I won't go off into a long rant about, but he still <laughs> owes me a copy of Halloween Havoc 93, still waiting 20 odd years later. Um, <laughs> But uh, I then met uh, Dean Ayers, who went on to be sort of a commentator and a manager on the British scene at a fan convention called Fanbury in 1993. Um, and sort of from that, I was getting into, you know, the Japan, you'd get Japanese tapes and obviously, you know, went through the period of getting all your the, the, uh, FMW and the wing death matches and you get the women's matches and suddenly at that kind of period, 1993, 1994, although business was kind of down, you had so many uh different promotions kind of running you'd have you know new japan all japan michinoku smoky mountain ecw triple a all these promotions doing like great matches and sort of all completely different styles i think it was i mean me just to throw a name out there as someone and you've been involved with john that 
if it wasn't for his publication, really, where you'd find the tape traders, you wouldn't start that, and that would be Finn Martin, really, from uh, Superstars of Wrestling. I don't know if you Yeah, agree. I mean, certainly, and, yeah, I mean, uh, Rob uh, Butcher, who yeah, was, like, yeah, one of, of the main tape traders at the time, obviously was writing for it and was able to, to advertise his, his kind of tapes in, in the thing. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, Finn certainly... Uh, tried to cover at that period a lot of kind of the independent scene um certainly ecw's appeal over here was helped tremendously by the fact that george tahinos who uh is is based in philadelphia would photograph all the shows and and send them over here uh and in in 1994 uh, the night the line was crossed was actually voted the the show of the year in power slam despite the fact that ecw had no tv over here there were no commercial tapes released over here it's just purely for you know for photographs in magazine and from people getting this tape which was the first tape that uh, rob butcher ever traded but he had to get a replacement because he dubbed it so many times that it actually physically wore out yeah so, yeah, I was just saying the, the tape trading uh, turned on a lot of fans that in the publications at the time. So I think from that, that's how we are, where we are now talking on this show, really. All the crap Powerslam takes these days, because it is a bit of a rag now. But if you go back a few years, I think that's how everyone really stacks you best in a different way. You buy that and you hear all these exciting, you know, carny turns. And then, you know, you, by osmosis, you learn things and you realise, you know, Actually, this Chris Benoit fella, he's very, very good. And perhaps Jim Duggan, while he's the man, he's not as good as I once thought. You know, and I think a lot of it is down to the Powerslam magazine, Superstars of Wrestling. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have a slightly different genesis to to, to, to most fans, because I, I had a long period of being, uh, I guess, how can I put this, a very ironic fan. Um, I, I, I guess people go through a, an ironic, or some people go through an ironic phase uh, where you get into like the, the, the more kind of wrestle crap stuff. So my, my bread and butter was stuff like, um, you know, collecting things like, so it, where a lot of people were going and discovering Japanese wrestling, I was getting deep into the Coliseum video back catalogue, you know, Super Tape 91 and stuff like this uh, presented by Sean Mooney. That was my kind of like, <laughs> like so in the early 2000s uh i was doing that sort of stuff um and really getting into kind of you know i guess the the dark the darker recesses of um of uh wf's kind of uh back catalog there you know weird dino bravo matches and things um but i think the turning point for me was uh watching beyond the mat i i, I can't underestimate the in, the impact that that had on me as a as a fan watching that documentary, and uh, I, th- I wanted to know more about Terry Funk, and uh, that's when I really started like trying to find other stuff um, as well. Uh, I also bought, you know, Chad, I'm a big fan of Ted DiBiase, right? Right. <laughs> um, I I I went and I started trying trying to put together other pieces of his career, and I, that's when I started getting involved with. Um, people selling, you know, DVD sets and things online that they, you know, compilations. Uh, I was never really a, te- like, the only tapes I bought were official releases. I never I never got into that whole scene. And even now, there's still a lot of Japanese stuff that I haven't seen. Like, um, especially, like, the, the peak 90s All Japan stuff. I still haven't seen any of that. So I'm, I'm still, it's still on my to-do list. Um, so I, I, I'm in the unusual position of having seen 80s All Japan and not seen 90s New Japan. Uh, all Japan. So um, there we are. 
Well, Beyond Vermat was the turning point for me as well, where specifically when I watched it, my turning point was, oh, my God, I need to get my hair cut. <laughs> yeah, you were on that show, weren't you? That is great. Yeah, I have one one entire line in it. As uh, I, I go to see uh, Terry Funk have his last match back in 1997. It's been a long time since he wrestled, isn't it? <laughs> well, funnily enough, he'll be what I'll be seeing him live in a couple of months just down the road from me here. So he's uh, he's still touring, he's still doing it. Wow, how old is Terry Funk now? I think there was. I made a comment. I don't think anyone got back to me, and I posted this. Um, him and Dory did a match last year uh, in one the All Japan Anniversary Show, I think. Uh, and their combined age was, I couldn't think there was a tag team with a higher combined age. I think Terry's, I don't know if any of you want to quickly check, I think he's 68, 69. 69. 69. Yeah, and he's still, still going strong. So there we go. God, can you imagine Dory Funk Jr. now? Like, well, he's uh, not aged. He's not aged looking him facially. He looks the same as he did 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, Dory looks the same he did like in 1981, but he looked 60 years old in 1981, and he's 72 now. I think that's the trick to eternal use, these wrestlers who look old, young, and then they stay the same for years to go after that. If you work a slow, boring style, I guess you can't, like, uh, nothing can catch up with you. I guess <laughs> Dory works exactly the same now as he did in 1981. <laughs> oh, was Sawyer when he died? Was Sawyer looked a million, and he was like 21 years of age, and he looked older than Neville Southall, and he's a few years <laughs> Yeah, uh, Buzz, Buzz Sawyer was quite young. Yeah, you're right. But he he looked like he was in his. Uh, he, in fact, well, one of the, that's one of the things I found with a lot of the older. Like uh, I watched this match with uh, Gene Knitsky, and he was only like 45 or something. He looks he looks horrible, like 60. Like some of those old uh, some of those old time guys that seem to age very quickly. Uh, yeah, Buzz was 32 when he died, so and that was 1992. So when we saw him in 1990, par, he was a 30 year old. Wow, <laughs> so hard life. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, any any concluding thoughts about uh, the British wrestling? I, I guess we should ask where, where it's where do you see it going? Uh, some, some people have said that uh, TNA could grow their audience here. Do you think um, Do you think it will ever get back in the kind of I think it will ever have another high spot, I guess, another period where it's really popular. Because I speak to some friends of mine now, and they don't have a clue who John Cena is. Like, the, lots of them don't know. Like, guys who don't want... If I say wrestling to one of my school friends, they still go back to kind of 91, 92. If, um, if you speak to some younger people, they'll default to Attitude Era and Austin. Um, but I don't get the sense that the man in the street necessarily knows who John... Cena is unless they've unless they've actually watched wrestling in the past couple of years. Um, so do, do you think there'll come a point where it's uh, where it's popular again? And uh, John, I'll, I'll ask you first. I think the only way it would happen would be sort of as you know spillover if it became big cultural phenomenon like the the attitude era in in the states. And I don't think it's ever happened. I think it's going to go the same way as it is in in America, where it's kind of an increasingly uh, fewer number of people who kind of watch wrestling but those who do are kind of you know really into it spend a lot of money in it you know pay a lot of attention you know you've got network now in the states they can be completely into it and that certainly seems to be the way it's going over here and it's it's never going to be like it was you know world sport because even if you had if you if you gave a british promotion 
gave them a slot for 4pm till 4.45 for the entire year on Saturday afternoons on ITV. That's still going to be nothing like kind of the cultural era of when there were only three channels and uh, sort of, you know, much fewer entertainment options. Do you think we're going to get the network? Do you believe them when they say it's going to come here? I think it depends entirely on the uh, on the Sky deal. And but I mean, there's no reason. I'm certainly be interested to see how hard they are sort of uh, protecting the idea of, of non-US citizens signing up with, you know, uh, uh, proxies, uh, uh, servers and that kind of thing uh, might give us kind of an idea. But it, it depends purely on the sky deal and that's going to be a very interesting one because you've got bt sport potentially as you know an alternative bid there's never really been a case uh, apart from you have a couple of years on channel four where there was any other real competition for sky to kind of pay for the wwf programming alan any thoughts um i don't see it going anywhere near to the heights that we had to, that we've touched on earlier on in the show i think you know if you're a fan, a lot of people with wrestling, and I don't know about any other fo- and any other entertainment, but a lot of people I find, if you're a fan, you're a fan for a long, long time. Um, so it's once you're initially hooked, you're going to follow it on and off. Even if you dip out and dip back in, you're always going to come back to it. And I think with wrestling, that's one of those forms of entertainment that you know you get, you can be brought back into it, but not the average man on the street recognizing John Cena like they did, you know, years years ago with the British guys. I don't think. Uh, I think that there's too many forms of entertainment for people that, you know, wrestling is just one of those forms. I don't think it's kind of this main draw that it, you know, was years and years ago. And, and Gareth, and I also want to ask you, Gareth, what happened with that world of uh, sports show that they were trying to bring back? Like there was talk of it being on ITV. What, what happened with that? Because uh, I know it happened in November last year. Yeah. Uh, I honestly don't know. Uh, I've spoken to people saying, is it going to happen? Who's got it? When's it going to happen? But obviously, I, I'm just a little grunt in the big scheme of things, so uh, people don't really like to tell me very much about things like that. Um, I honestly don't know what's going to happen with it. I think it's just a case of they're recording it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be on the ITV and Barrel channels. I think they're just recording it and they can sell it, to be honest. Well, that's if it gets recorded, does it? Has it actually been recorded, John, or...? Yeah, they had the, the tape in November, which was, uh, there's some kind of confusion because there is ITV and ITV Sport, and one is, you know, a TV channel and the other is a production company. Uh, and as far as, the, as far as I understood it, it was recorded by ITV Sports, uh, with kind of ITV having the first rights to potentially do something with it, commission it, turn it into a series or whatever. But it, it's probably just in, you know, kind of the, the production uh, kind of limbo of um, looking at reviewing it, seeing if they want to do anything with it. Do, do, do you think that would, uh, do you think there's any chance of like, I guess, the British scene? So rather than American wrestling becoming big, like the actual British scene re-emerging as something that people uh, go to? Because, I mean, in, in those couple of indie shows I went to last year, it did seem kind of quite vibrant and healthy the uh, the attendances and it, it seemed like there's something happening there um, like so the indie scene do you see that getting any bigger I think it's really only it could only really get big if you had sort of a permanent t- you know good TV slot that a lot of people are getting that you could use as the basis for kind of building live shows on I think that's that's unlikely to happen I think any kind of TV is going to be you know, a a run of eight shows or whatever, sort of a standalone series. Gareth, a lot of it 
like uh, for example the company I work for and companies like Allstar, we're not fussed about TV. I mean, we've got a business model that works. We go into a town, like basically we're a brainstorming company. You go into a town once or twice a year, poster everywhere. It's gonna basically just advertise, 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 come in, try and draw three hundred, four hundred people, get out, come back in a year. I think television would have no bearing at all on our business on the way that we do business, I think, as a brainstorming promotion. Right, and, and and are there particular people who are drawing those shows, do you think, Gareth? Or, or do you think it's the idea of just, like, going to see the wrestling in itself is a novelty enough for those 500 people? American wrestling is seen on TV, essentially, because we don't advertise who's going to be on shows because we don't know who's going to be on shows a lot of the time. Say, for example, on February 24th, we've got a show in the Roslechigog, where I live. I'm on the same night in Connecticut, you know, so we, we can't advertise who's going to be where. Right. And also, because we run a lot in the week, a lot of wrestlers have day jobs. I mean, James Mason tends to work every show for us, and a fellow called me and Tommy Dean, but the rest of the um, roster varied, you know? So it's the draw is the wrestling's in town, and we go to towns that don't get a lot of entertainment, places like a Ballard and places like that, where there's not a lot else to do. So when the wrestling comes into town, you know, it's, it's like the fucking rock stars, you know, the wrestling's here, yeah! Because there's nothing else to do. So, yeah. Chan, any final questions here, or should we wrap up? Uh, I think we covered it pretty well, getting a unique perspective, certainly from my end, and seeing how American wrestling was infiltrated over there, and I guess sort of the merging of the world of sport with the WWF stuff. So it was a very interesting discussion to me. Yeah, and uh, just before we uh, finish off the, uh, here, Alan, where, uh, where can people find your podcast? Oh, quickly, just before I mention that, there's an interesting yep. documentary um, that's going to be released next year by a company called Figure Four Films. Um, more information if you go on figure4films.com or follow them on Twitter. They're releasing a documentary called Two Falls to a Finish um, about World of Sport era and wrestling from that point moving forward, the UK scene. And by the looks of it, it does look like it could be a promising documentary. They've interviewed a whole slew of people from years, years ago to current day stars. So that's definitely something to look out for in the next 12 months. And I think on my podcast, just a quick segue to it, uh, Wrestling iPod. Uh, the Wrestling Eye podcast. We're going to hopefully have uh, the filmmaker, the documentary makers on themselves discussing that in the next uh, couple of months. So that'll be a fun show. So quickly, you can check me out again um, at Wrestling Eye Pod on Twitter. You can search for Wrestling Eye Podcast on iTunes, Blackberry Podcasts, Stitcher, and all other fun stuff like that. So it'd be great if we can get a few more listeners onto my show. So thank you very much. John, you involved with that documentary at all? or? Yeah, I, I was actually interviewed for that, doing a lot of kind of a historical perspective and kind of looking at uh, things over time. And I think kind of a lot of sort of the links from segment to segment uh, uh, by the sound of it going to sort of be me, me speaking, putting it all together. So definitely looking forward to that. And sort of they, they asked some great questions and had sort of done a lot of research. It's to be quite interesting to see something that kind of spans the, the generation because there's a lot of documentaries about kind of the world sport era and quite a few documentaries about sort of the scene now so it'd be very interesting to see one that sort of brings them all together and uh, if, if people are looking to find uh, your stuff where can they go 
Uh, all three of my books are available uh, on the Kindle, so say just search for John Lister and Fighting Spirit magazines out every month in WH Smiths. And you can also, if you go to fightingspiritmagazine.co.uk, there's links there to get it on uh, both the iPad and Android tablets. And you save a lot of money getting it uh, that way, and you get it sort of straight away. And it's also kind of quite interactive when you flick through a lot of the stuff will have links. So if, you know, I've done a, an article about, say, a Jim Breaks, and, you know, I mentioned in it, you know, there was this time when he had a match with uh, Johnny Saint, they had an argument, he ended up with his nose busted. You actually were able to click straight on there and go to a, a YouTube link of the, the match. That's, like, really great way to read the magazine. Great. And, uh, Gareth, I, I guess uh, if we have any listeners from Wales, and I'm sure there are some out there, uh, where can where can they uh, see you uh, see you in action doing your your ring announcing? Ooh, well, Wildwrestling uh, <laughs> dot com. I think that's the main place to go. Um, over half term, we've got a big tour of North Wales, back to the homelands. Get in. <laughs> and you've got that coming up. Um, sorry, you're also kind of. Uh, am I right in thinking you're basically like the head on show there at uh, UKFF? Oh, no, I, I, I'm a lowly moderator who just gets very angry with people saying shite. Um, I got that. <laughs> you can find me at Twitter. I'm at Gaz Maybury. Maybury spelled M-A-Y-B-U-R-Y. I don't tweet about wrestling. I mainly moan about Lee Ryan and Celebrity Big Brother. But it's a fantastic series of it. So I'll be tweeting about Snooker today, actually. Because the Snooker's on. Is it? Oh, yeah. Uh... Yeah, he's on now. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you very much, everyone. And uh, what are we doing next time, Chad? What's uh, what's our next show? We're uh, actually going to have to discuss that off air. So <laughs> be on the lookout. But uh, we should be back fairly soon. Yeah. All, all right. Th- th- thanks a lot, everyone. And uh, join us next time on Where the Big Boys Play.